Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God, joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen shouting blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest some of the pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher rebuke your disciples but jesus answered i tell you if these become silent the stones will cry out when he approached jerusalem he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word that he said. And Father, we come before you and we ask for your help. May we be people that hang on to every word that you said. Lord, help us as we work our way through this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this story is is called the triumphal entry. It's the king coming uh, to to establish sort of his kingdom. These are, in human standards, these are like big days. These are days when... Kings and nobles and everybody comes out. And in January, our country will will establish our president for the next four years, whether it's the same one or the new one or a new one. And people from everyone will come. It'll be televised worldwide. Billions of dollars. I mean, I don't know billions, but a lot of money will be spent in the whole operation. It's a huge procession. It's a big deal. Even in smaller scales, when we look at weddings, I I have to be careful because I always forget their names. But there was that little wedding in, in Europe uh, on an island, you know, England somewhere. Prince Harry and some girl got married last year. And the world was all over this thing. Her dress, her hat. It was just, I mean, everywhere you went, there was pictures of this. William and Kate. I know. I got in trouble last year. I, but everybody knew about this wedding. But even in small weddings, you know, Anna's sister's getting married in May. And last night, I like walk into the room, and they're on the computer, they're on Skype, 
and her sister's holding up her wedding dress and showing the front and the back. And Grace is like, Tia, go back and put it on and come show it off for us. And so then her sister walks out. And I'm in the next room going, oh, man, weddings, you know. Then why is it such a big deal? Because it's like the big day. You walk in and the groom is there staring at you. Everybody stands up and takes you in. Like these days are huge days. And so Jesus is coming and it doesn't happen in the way that we would think. Last week, we looked at Zechariah chapter 14, verse four, and the few verses as the disciples were anticipating this journey into Jerusalem. They thought when they got there that the prophecy that Zechariah told of that Jesus would stand on the Mount of Olives, that he would look across to the temple and between his legs, there'd be this huge earthquake and the land would divide from from north to south and a ravine would be cut to the temple. And that day is still coming. But they were anticipating this. And Jesus kept telling them like these parables, like, hey, no, I'm going to be executed. I'm going to be crucified. You're, you're, you're thinking correctly, but you skipped ahead. You, you're not focusing on Zechariah chapter 9, which tells of the donkey, this humble entrance into Jerusalem. Isaiah 53, the, the suffering servant. And so in verse 28, when we come here, this great anticipation that we first read about back in Luke chapter 951. So some 10 chapters prior in the gospel of Luke, we read for the first time when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And from that point, scattered throughout those last 10 chapters, we see that Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem. He was going. He was going to give his life as a ransom for many. He was going to pay the ultimate cost so that humans separated by sin, that their sin would be atoned for through faith in him. They get there in verse 28. And after he'd said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. The excitement is building. Jewish people are still to this day. If you go to Israel, when it's time to go to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, the, how, the, the city that's on a hill surrounded by hills, there is so much anticipation and excitement because this Jerusalem is the, the most famous city in the whole world. More has happened in there in human history, more disputes, more prophecy, just so much stuff. And it's exciting. It's the festival time. It's Passover. Hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people would be flocking to the city. And they're getting there with the Messiah. And they're so eager. And verse 29, when they approached Bethphage and, and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet. So they're near the top of the hill, which, which overlooks the Kedron Valley. They would go down and they'd go up. They're getting close to this place. When they get there, And Jesus said to the two of his disciples in the end of verse 29, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. (laughs) They'd walk some like 80 miles from Galilee and they have not even a mile to go. Like, I don't know the exact distance, but maybe it's half a mile. It's about a 20-minute walk from the top going down and going up. All of a sudden, now he needs a ride. He needs something. All right, guys, I need you to go down there. I need you to get this. this, this. See, this is I'm from Valley. So I really need to work on my animal, a colt, a donkey. Nobody's ever ridden on it. You got to go down there. Just take it. 
I mean, guys, this is grand theft donkey happening right here. This is this is like a big deal. He says, just go get one that's tied up and, and just get it and bring it over here. Matthew, who cares so much about the prophecy and great deal, tells us that they bring back two, the, the mom or the other one, and then the baby that's never been written, the colt. They, bo- they bring both up. And that's in Matthew, I think, chapter 19 or so. But maybe I have 19 in my mind just because we're in Luke chapter 19. But if you read all of, the, all of the different details of this, you can piece together the story with more detail. He says, just go there. And I think these guys like, taking another man's animal is a big deal. This would be like, we're here. Hey, guys, what I want you to do, I want you to go down to the Toyota dealership. There's going to be some keys in the ignition. I want one that's never been driven before. Fire her up and bring it to me. Anybody asks you what you're doing, just tell them the Lord needs of it. And so these guys obediently are walking down the hill like they're thinking what is he thinking like we're gonna get in trouble like but he said do it you know like like this is hilarious like why does jesus we just walked 80 miles why does he need a ride at this point like what see jesus is fulfilling prophecy see we there when they read zechariah they kind of got hung up on the whole zechariah chapter 14 which they didn't have chapters back then, but in the 1500s, the French guy put in chapters. So now we know it as Zechariah 14. But if you go earlier in Zechariah 9.9, you read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt. The foal of a donkey. And so as Jesus gives this instruction, prophecy from hundreds of years ago is unfolding. And none of us ride donkeys. I have, that's a total assumption. We are in Valley Center. But there, and I've never broken in a donkey. Never ridden a donkey. I've never broken in a donkey. But I know that when an animal is called a green animal, it's, it's like never been ridden on. And it just doesn't work out as smoothly as it's supposed to happen. And I've heard it said... The donkeys are stubborn. During the last service, I see a couple look at each other, start laughing. I'm like, oh, he must have ridden a donkey before. And then the wife came up and she said, no, I told him that he was married to a donkey because she was so stubborn. She's like, you, <laughs> I'm just like, and I'm like, oh, that's what the smile was about. And so they're getting this donkey. Jesus is going to get on. This prophecy is unfolding. This is not like a fancy animal. This would be, one commentator said, describing this, it was maybe it was in a commentator, it was a modern day guy. And he said, it would be like if during the, the noble wedding, <clears throat> you know, normally they have like a big horse chariot or Rolls Royce or really fancy cars that I don't even know what they're called. All of a sudden, the Prince Harry and Kate show up in a like an old Kia. Like just came, how you guys doing? <laughs> like, like it's not what we think of, of prestige. And so this donkey was the lowest of lows of animals. And here Jesus is going to hop on, ride it in for his triumphal entry. Super humble. Humble. And so these guys go down there, sneaking down the hill, trying to find this colt that's tied up, that's never been ridden. And then they got to sneak away with it. And their big battle plan is somebody asks, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. So verse 32 So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he told them. 
as they were untying the colt, their worst situation unfolded upon them. The owner says, what, what are you doing? Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. I don't know they said, hey, the Lord has need of it. Don Fredericks told me, he's like, I imagine the Jedi wave, the Lord needs it. <laughs> like, kind of, like, okay, <laughs> you know, who knows what happened, but this is not a good strategy. As you're stealing somebody's donkey, the Lord needs it. Thank you very much. Hey, they let me get away with it. It worked. He knows what he's talking about. So they get the donkey. They bring it back up to the top of the hill. They brought it to Jesus, verse 35. And they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. This is another sort of pat, like, what's happening here? They get this colt. They take their jackets off. They put it on to use as a saddle. And then they start laying their coats. Is it like a, you know, like I've heard of laying your coat down for a lady, like so she doesn't walk through a puddle. I've never actually seen it implemented anywhere other than the movies. I don't know if people actually do this anywhere. But to have your coat, this wasn't just like a coat where you had 100 coats or 100 sweaters that you had excess. This was a major part of your, like, I don't know if livelihood is the right way, but this was your blanket at night. This is what gave you protection during winter. Most people only had one coat. And so then they're throwing it on as a saddle for Jesus to sit on. And then as he's walking down the hill, they're laying it so that the donkey could walk. Not even Jesus. It's the donkey can walk on it. And if you do a study in the Old Testament, this was very common practice for kings. As Jehu was being made king in Second um, Kings chapter 9, verses 12 through 13. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it to you. In that passage, it says, they said, it is a lie. Tell us now. And he said, thus and thus he said to me, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. And so this is, as they're laying their coats, it's not that Jesus is just hopping on a donkey and riding into town. As they're taking off their jackets, as they're putting it down, this is the Messiah. Israel with no king. They were under submission to Rome. Their king was here. They were going to be freed from the bondage that they were under. They're throwing their coats down and Jesus begins to go down the road. It's a beautiful picture that's so easily missed as we just read over this. And then in verse 37, the story kind of unfolds in its fullness. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives. So he's getting near the top. If you would go to the next slide, please. I accidentally left this on there. This is a picture looking from the Mount of Olives over to where the temple. You see the big wall. That's the wall around Jerusalem. This is present day. There's a bunch of graves. You would walk. It's about a 20-minute walk. You, you walk down the road. You cut up, and you go to the temple. This is the spot where Jesus got to at this point. I don't know what these guys are thinking. This is the spot in Zechariah chapter 14 where the Messiah will stand here. Earthquake will divide straight to the temple. Water's going to flow out. They know that there's a ton of water under there right now. That's the, 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 the Hezekiah's tunnel has water flowing out. And they're excited. And this is the spot. And they're walking down. And as they're walking down, as they reach this, the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd, you can go back to the next slide, the, the previous slide. The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God. 
joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. As they're going down, the reality of who Jesus is, all of the things that they'd seen, all of these miracles, people rising from the dead, this, this expectation of getting to Jerusalem. They're so overwhelmed that they can't be, stop themselves from praising out. And in verse 38, we get a snapshot of what they were shouting. It says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. See, we read this. We think, oh, did they just, that's really good. Did they just come up with that themselves? Did they just start shouting out? You know what I mean? Praise to the king. What is that from? And if your Bible has notes, it'll tell you that this is a quote from the Old Testament. From the Old Testament, you'll see it's a psalm. And if you go to that psalm, Psalm 118, which we're all going to do, we're going to look at the whole psalm. So in the middle of the Bible, you'll get to the psalms. And in Psalm 118, this is a psalm that they would sing during the feast. Jesus is entering Jerusalem during one of the feasts, the Passover, one of the three largest ceremonies or, or parties that they would have a year. People would come from everywhere into this town. People would be just everywhere. I mean, it's a situation that I can't stand. Crowds. I mean, from everywhere, from all different lands would flock. It was their pilgrimage. As you entered into Jerusalem, there's psalms called Psalms of Ascent that you would sing as you were entering in. And Psalm 118 is a psalm that's reserved for these feast times. And they're going to quote what they quoted is verse 26 and 27. But this psalm is so significant that I think we should go through the whole thing. And in verse 1 it begins, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. Let Valley Baptist Church say his loving kindness is everlasting. These are huge proclamation of who God is. Then the psalmist continues. From my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. We should probably read that over again. <laughs> it's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in government. The Lord Verse 10, all nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. I had to remind the last service because there's a beekeeper in the last service. Being surrounded by bees is a bad thing. When you talk to beekeepers, they think it's cool. There's nothing good about being surrounded by bees. It's bad. Just just for the sake of clarity, in case there's any beekeepers in here. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. The sound of a, 
of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteousness. See, the salvation, the Lord is my salvation. We say, Hosanna. That's what Hosanna means. The Lord saves. We sing all these songs, Hosanna, Hosanna. What the world does Hosanna mean? I don't have a clue until I look it up. And it's like, oh, the Lord saves. Verse 15, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the, of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die, but live. And tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. I think of John 14.6. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The righteous shall enter through it. I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me. And you have become my Hosanna. Salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this verse is, is a foundational verse in the New Testament. Peter would say this all the time. He, Jesus is Lord. He is salvation. There's no other name under heaven by which man are saved. They wanted to shut him up over this after Jesus' Jesus's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And in Acts 20, or Acts chapter 4, verse 19, verse 20, we read this. As he's standing amongst the court where he would face, he wasn't at this time facing his death, but he very well could have. And they concluded, you need to shut up and stop talking about Jesus or we're going to really get in trouble. Like they kind of run out of threats, but they kind of threatened him again. And Peter responds, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And all from this like verse 22, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is God. He is the Messiah. He is the promised redeemer of Israel and all humanity. Verse 23 of Psalm 118. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. And here's the verse that they're singing as Jesus is walking down the hill or riding on the donkey. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. They are singing this song to Jesus as he's approaching the temple. This is huge. And we go back to Luke verse 19 or chapter 19. And in this verses 37 and 38, that's the psalm that they're singing to Christ because he is God. And as they're doing this, we're going to see that the Pharisees, the religious leaders are getting furious. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why would they say this? See, we hear people in our culture all the time say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. He was a great teacher. He was a great philosopher. He was a great example to man. He never claimed to be God. 
over and over and over again, it's overwhelming evidence showing that Jesus indeed accepted praise as God. And he cannot accept praise as God if he's a good teacher, a good philosopher, a good example. He can't. If this case, when they scolded Jesus, is to say, you got to shut up your disciples because they're saying you're God. And that's blasphemy. And we saw Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter something or other, where I forgot, where they go into this town and they heal somebody. And as they healed this man, all of the people said, oh, Paul and Barnabas, they're gods. They started calling Paul Hermes and Barnabas Zeus. And when Paul and Barnabas saw this, they tore their clothes and said, no, we're just men just like you. Save your worship for the creators of the heaven and universe, which is Jesus. And if Jesus isn't God, that's how he should have reacted. But how does he respond to this? this, The Pharisees' condemnation is very legitimate. Because if Jesus is not God, he's needed to stop him. But verse 40, Jesus answered, I tell you, if these, referring to the disciples, become silent, the stones will cry out. Let's just let that kind of sink in for a second. Up to this point, every time Jesus has kind of healed somebody, he says, okay, don't tell anybody. Keep it silent. Don't do anything. My time hasn't come yet. Now, suddenly, he flips the switch. Listen, if they, if they don't speak, these rocks, these stones that you see, they're going to begin worshiping Psalm 118. They're going to start praising me as God. That's a pretty bold declaration of Jesus. In Habakkuk, we see that creation will testify against humanity. Habakkuk is told, I think it's Habakkuk 2.11 or somewhere around there. They're told that the, the, the beams, the, the, the trees, I'm like, where do beams come from? They come from trees. <laughs> that the trees are going to testify against the, the people of Lebanon at the end times for the things that they've done. And Jesus says, these stones will cry out, saying that I'm God. Could a man say that? Can I say that? I can't say that. If I say that, I'm a total blasphemer. Jesus says that it's true. He's entering. And now as he gets there, we see he he gets up to the mount, up to where the temple is. Temple is huge. Pictures, you flip it over to the next slide. A picture does not give justice. Where the dome of the mount is is where the actual temple was during Jesus' day. It was destroyed. The area inside of that is ginormous. That's my phraseology. I, I, I mean, you can, I don't even know if you can see people in there, but it is, it's overwhelmingly huge. Okay, so the mosque holds over 1,000 people, and that's just a tiny little portion of the whole temple grounds. And so this is where Jesus is about to enter in. You can go back to the, ne- the previous slide. And as he's approaching Jerusalem... He saw the city and he wept over it. Fascinating. The great king who talks about when he comes at his second coming, it's going to be a different story. He sees the city and he weeps over it. At this time, there's a huge party. All of these people, Luke doesn't record it, but they're waving palm branches. They're laying their coats down. They're worshiping and singing Psalm 118. See, we call it, we call it Palm Sunday. And I don't even know that I like support that saying. I mean, I have to. That's with a big star. I'm gonna have to do some research on me. But but the whole palms, 
Like this was their national symbol. That was like on the Israeli coins for them. That was their national symbol. They're waving these coins. They're they're not waving the coins. They're waving the palm branches. It would be equivalent to us waving American flags. We want you to be our new president. When you come and you're established as king, these Romans will be off of us. They're making all this stuff and his heart's breaking because he knows that within a week he's going to be hanging on a cross. Your sin, my sin, the sin of the world is going to be placed upon him. And he knew no sin. And he saw this, these people. And if that was me, I would get angry. I'm like, I'm getting out of this town. I'd be like, you know, James, the apostle of love. Back in Samaria, we saw the story. He says, Jesus, they won't let us through. They're Samaritans. Can we pray the prayer where fire and brimstone come out of heaven? Can we smoke them, Lord? Jesus says, oh, you got it all wrong. Like if I knew that they were going to turn on me and I was going to be executed for something I didn't do, I don't know that I would be weeping in agony over them. And when I read this verse, I, th- I-, I can't help but to be convicted. How do I feel about my community? How do you feel about Valley Center, Escondido, our surrounding area? Does your heart break for our community, for those that don't know Jesus? This is a season for me, like at the Easter to summertime, in Valley, being at Valley Baptist Church. This is like, I'm concluding our five years up here. This place was like Africa. I grew up in San Diego, but if you asked me, say, five years and two months ago, what, where Valley Center was, I'm like, Valley Center, is that in San Diego or is that somewhere like, I, I had no idea. I grew up here. I mean, I was from La Mesa. And then coming up here and seeing the church, I mean, there's about three or four people in the church today that were here back then. And it was a group of elderly people. I always joke, Alberta was a youth group. It was joking, but it wasn't joking. Him and his wife were like the youth group. There were eight. I thought there were 12. Alberto said, there, no, brother, there was like eight of us. <laughs> He's like, there weren't many of us. And and, and I felt like the Lord was like convicting me to, to come up here. He's, and I remember we'd have Sunday services and we'd stand here on the ground. There'd be like 20 chairs. Like, oh, we need to reach our community for Christ. And George with like tears in his eyes. For those of you who know George and Evie, he was the pastor back in the 60s. And I think, oh, well, we're going to go slow. I know change is hard. And I'll never forget that one midweek meeting when Evie looked at me with tears in her eyes, and if she could have touched, if she could have grabbed me, she would have, but thankfully I was out of striking. She's from New York. You've got to keep her distance. <laughs> she looked at me, and she's like, brother, we're dying, and they're all going to hell. We've got to reach them, and don't go slow for us. They need Jesus. And it was this heart of George and Evie, like in so many of the people that were here, it's just overwhelming. And during that time, I remember... You know, Bill Troke, the pastor at Ridgeview, he'd pick me up. He drive, drove me around Valley Center, the whole, like, 100 square miles of Valley Center, just praying with me, saying, brother, there's, so many, there's, there's a whole lot of religion out here, people that don't know Jesus, and there's a whole lot of people that just don't care about church. And I remember those days, you can't, like, most communities, you can kind of, what they do, prayer walk, you can kind of walk the neighborhood. Can't do that here. <laughs> So if you can save up, fill up your gas to tank, you like prayer drive our community, you know. <laughs> but seriously, if you look at our community, there's so much diversity and stuff. I mean, from, from the edge of town, we have all of the Indian reservations that Jesus loved and died for them. And I'm so 
blessed that our church is made up of so many tribal members that we're just one in Christ. And they're, they're you and everybody. And does your heart weep over our, our community? And I, and as we grow, like for me, like as we, as I enter my sixth year of ministry here, I can't forget those times. Like I think of George and Evie and their tears. And I wonder how many people are in church today that came to Christ over the last five years as a result of their prayers and their desire not to be worried about change. And as Jesus is the example, here he is, innocent. The Bible tells us that he was without sin, maintained the law perfectly. He fulfilled it. And he's weeping over this city that was going to execute him in six days. And that's the heart that he wants me to have. He goes on to say, verse 42, saying, if you had known in this day, even the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave you, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus is entering down and he's saying, listen, I'm your Messiah, the one that was prophesied all the way back down in Genesis 3, all the way through the prophets. They all spoke of me. I'm here and you're rejecting me. And your eyes are going to be closed. And there's this severe warning. And I read this and we, you know, we joke about, you know, the CEOs, Christians on Easter and the Christmas and Easter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, ah. I didn't make that one up. <laughs> I was one of them for many, many years. And I read this and I see like every time a person comes into church, there's a woe to you who hear the gospel and then harden your heart to it. Because eventually your heart becomes so hard that you're inoc. See, I had a hard time with the word inoculized, inoculization, inoc- am I close? Immunized. Immunized. Yes. You get your inoculation. That's why it wasn't working. I'm trying to create a new word, which I have a, I have a litany of new words that I love. Um, and so, so there's this warning. You hear the gospel. You hear that Jesus loves you, that he came. He lived the perfect life. He was crucified for you. He, he was buried on the third day. He rose again. You hear that. You reject that. Eventually, your heart becomes so hard that there's nothing left. And it worries me being a past, like as a pastor, it scares me to death. Not even for all of you. Like there's, a, I, there's all kind of warnings against me that I'm responsible for you. I don't think that's fair, but I'm not God. So I have nothing to say. All I do is keep up at night over that whole thing. But for my kids, like to see kids that grew up in the church, they go, oh, they become, we are very good at creating little religious people that think that they're better than other people because they go to church on Sunday, they go to midweek Bible study, they do VBS, they know all of the Christianese, but they don't know Jesus. And my prayer for my kids is that they come to know Jesus and that this church would help them to come into relationship with him, not to turn and create little religious people. And there's a warning here. And I don't think that we have a bunch of religious people here. It actually breaks my heart that... The, like most times when people visit this church, the first thing they say to me is, wow, I can't believe how transparent you are. People are like real here. And it breaks my heart because it tells me that other churches aren't like that. 
Like churches are great at creating religion and putting this facade of externals so that you do certain things or you don't do certain things. And because you do them or don't do them, God loves you more. Not about having relationship with him, which then affects your behavior, of course. Like your relationship with God will affect the things that you do or don't do. But those things don't earn you merit with God because Jesus paid it all. And Jesus gives this warning. He says, they're going to hem you in. They're going to surround you. They're going to flip every stone. Each one of those stones around that temple wall is like as big, like as heavy as a VW Volkswagen. Huge. Like, like I'm not a big engineer or anything, but they're big rocks. Big ones. Big ones. (laughs) And in AD 70, that temple was destroyed. All of it was temple and the romans literally pried the rocks apart because they needed to extravate extravate the gold from within the rocks and to this day the only part that remains is the most holy part in israel and that's the wailing wall they go there because that's one remaining part of the original temple and they wail at the wall they do their prayers they stick their prayers into the wall And Jesus said this some 35 years before it would happen as a warning. Huge prophecy. And so we see this like compassion of Jesus in verse 42. And so often this like compassion and sensitivity gets confused or exchanged for like weakness. And so here we see this this Lord who only is recorded twice in the whole scriptures of weeping. This is one time. The other time is in the easiest Bible verse to memorize. John 11 and 35, Jesus wept. The first verse I successfully memorized and still know to this day, Jesus wept. 11:35. I get it every time. I nail it every time. And when he wept there, he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Yet he goes and he sees all of the people mourning and suffering the consequence of sin, and that's death, that his heart is so overwhelmed at the devastation of sin that he just can't help but to weep. And he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. And here when he enters the city, he weeps over it because he could see what was coming. And then as he enters into the temple, verse 45, this guy who's weeping is, don't confuse weeping and compassion and sensitivity with passivity, weakness, he enters the temple, this huge area, and he begins to drive out those who were selling. So there's this huge area. And we're going to see that the issue wasn't so much that they were selling, but if you came for the festivals and you needed to make a sacrifice with some animal, which I've been in Valley Center long enough, I should know the biblical animals way better. I know it wasn't a pig, but like a goat, a sheep, like all of those stuff. Yeah, rabbits, turtle doves, all of the things that based on how much money you had, you needed to make a sacrifice. But the animals had to be special animals. You could raise the special animal or you could make your journey. You could go there and you could buy an animal that was endorsed and certified by the temple, by the priest. But these animals, the inflation on these animals was like like triple or quadrupled the price of what you really should pay. And not only were they super expensive, but you were coming from faraway lands. You needed to exchange your money into local currency. If you, and the currency exchange would not be fair market value. You would, have to, you would lose all sorts of money in that changing of currency to buy this animal that was inflated. 
And he begins to clear out this huge... I mean, if you've been to the marketplace, like in a culture like this, it's loud, obnoxious, all kind of people. It's hard to clear you out of church on Sundays, especially if I'm hungry. If I'm not hungry, I'm right there with you. But if I'm hungry, it's like, oh man, everybody's still talking. (laughs) It's like... It's like, I can understand, I like, I love talking, I love the culture. But it's like, when we're pushing like 2 o'clock, and church ended at noon, it's like, okay, what do I gotta do? The universal way to clear out a room is you flicker the lights on and off. So I'll say, like, bloop, 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 bloop. And then you'll get them out of this room. And then you, you're hurting them, so you gotta go to the hallway, and flicker those lights, then you get everybody to the lobby. And then you smile, oh yeah, that's great. Where are we going to lunch? Where are we eating for lunch? Lunch is really important. You guys know it's 2 o'clock. We're almost going to have dinner, you know, lunch and dinner combined. Like, we got to do something. So then you flicker the lights, and then you get them outside. You lock the door, and then at that point, I say, hey, I'm totally cool with you guys sticking around, but I'm hungry. I'm out of here. And I don't know what happens at that point. And that's an easy crowd. This is the temple. Another account, we see that he had whips out, smashing, kicking over tables, and yet we imagine Jesus like blonde hair with a robe like a Swedish guy running down the beach. Like this is aggressive action to clear out the temple. And why is he so angry? Verse 46, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a robber's den. Like this is, they're supposed to be praying and worshiping the foreshadowing of the atonement for sin that he would give on the cross. The animals are being slaughtered as a foreshadow of the ultimate sacrifice that Christ would make. And yet they've turned it in. People are making millions and millions of dollars. These priests were loaded. Taking all of this money from the people. They totally distorted. And as a pastor of this church, we need to make sure that we stay on track. Why are we here? Why do we exist as a church? It's not for us to create. We don't look at the business model and go, man, Apple's a great company and they're doing really good and this is their sort of business model and maybe we do this, we can make a bunch of money. Or Microsoft too. I know that there's a couple of Microsoft people here. So I just like get the whole everybody. <laughs> but, but we exist. Jesus created the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the goal, the commission. To help people who don't know God to know God, to experience salvation through Christ. And that's our mission statement. And my mission statement as a pastor is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. My whole purpose is to help y'all, the saints, those who have trusted in Christ. We don't, you got to give it to the South on that one. Second person plural. English loses it. So I go Southern. Y'all, all of y'all, my job is to help you live out your calling that God has, has, once he saved you, he's created you for good works. And then it's my job to help you live that out, to equip you for the work of the ministry. And they had gotten off track. And verse 47, from chapters 20 to 21 to 22, Luke is going to expand upon this. We'll come back to it after Easter. But we're told, and he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. Why? Because he claimed to be God. In his arrest and trial, 
There's this scene where they're trying to say, well, he claimed to be God. He said all of this and all of this. And I think it was Pontius Pilate or one of the leaders looks and says, is this true? And he says, it is. And they're like, I can't believe he would admit this in front of this. This is the very thing that we're trying to condemn him for. And he just in open air admitted it. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pontius Pilate trying to get out of it says, well, here's this murderer, Barabbas. Barabbas. I, was, I know it's not Barnabas, but Barabbas says, oh, certainly they'll let Jesus go over this murderer. They say, let that man go free. Let this man's blood be on our heads and on our children's heads. Crucify him. And Jesus would go to the cross for his claim to be God. Don't let anybody confuse you about that. And they were angry about it, and they had a plan, and it would take them six or seven days to fulfill this plan to execute Jesus. But in verse 48, they had an immediate problem, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all of the people were hanging on to every word that he said. This was critical for them. They didn't have anything. Rome, they had their freedom to practice their religion, but Rome was there with a big iron fist, And said, if there's any sort of revolt, if there's any sort of problem, we're going to shut this all down. Say, man, all of these people, they're like hanging on to every word. Every word. If we do anything, there's going to be a big revolt and we're in trouble. But they would get their plan. And when I look at this story, when I look at the triumphal entry and see Jesus coming, where I want us to turn right now is over in Ephesians. We'll end here. Ephesians. I mean, I'm sorry, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. You guys all know where I'm going. Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, this is a great passage. Theologians call this a great Christological passage because it shows who Jesus is. In Philippians chapter 2, you know, people will call me and say, Hey, where's that verse that says that one day... Every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And normally I'll tell him, but I say, well, wait a minute. Where are you going with this? Well, I'm in this theological debate with a non-believer, and I need like the, you know, the two by four to hit him over the head. I'm like, that's probably not the best way to go. We miss the whole purpose of this whole passage about who Jesus is. And the key is in verse five. And so the triumphal entry as he enters in on this donkey, lowly, in verse 5, we read, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the whole purpose of this is to show how humble Jesus is and that we as followers of him, that's our attitude that we want to attain is humbleness. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, the kenosis, emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he goes on to say, for this reason that God, he'll be exalted. But our attitude as we look at Jesus's triumphal entry, this is humble. This is God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Colossians chapter 1, which is our next book that we're going to go through, says that when the creation was formed, when heavens and earth were formed, it was Jesus that that did all of this. Yet he humbled himself and he enters this, this way. 
And he's our example. And this week, while Easter, like I really, like the whole Easter thing, I really don't care about holidays. Like I really, I mean, I like Christmas and everything because I really like Elvis and like his Christmas carol. Like I love it. So I say this as a warning to me. We got to be careful with these holidays. If you're a believer in Christ, every day is Easter. The risen Lord has risen and every day is resurrection day. And our lives are changed because he has risen and we've placed our faith in him. And as we go through our holidays, we need to take severe warning at how Jesus talked to the Jerusalem as he wept over them. We need to take great caution in what we make of these holidays. I was terribly confused as a kid. I would go to church a couple times a year. Well, more than that, but I would be awake a couple times a year. And in the same stroke with Jesus came the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, all of these other fictional characters. And we need to be cautious because Jesus is not a fairy tale. He is God incarnate who went to the cross, who died for us, who paid for our sins, who exists and lives today. And so this week, as we prepare for Easter, there are a lot of people who are going to be here next Sunday. Like it just happens because it's Easter. There are going to be people here because of whatever reason, because their wife guilted them into coming to church, because their mom said, will you go to church one Sunday a year? Well, a friend, will you, it's Easter. Can you go to church? And maybe you're here today because somebody nagged you. I was there with you. I was there with you. My friend nagged me and nagged me and nagged me and nagged me. And I finally went to church on one concession. The deal was he would never ask me again. And I'm a pastor now. (laughs) Joke was on me. (laughs) But when you meet Jesus and he changes your life, you're like, Peter, I can't stop talking about him. And so there'll be people that may hear the gospel for the first time. And so we need to start praying that they would come. And that they would come to know him as Savior. And it wouldn't be about religion. It would be about a relationship. And Father, we thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you for this story of the triumphal entry. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator and sustainer of the universe, humbled himself and he came to earth. He lived the perfect life. He fulfilled the law completely. And that God, you being so full of love, that you are love. being so burdened for sin, would step out of heaven to make the ultimate sacrifice that we might have peace with you. And so, Father, I pray for those that are here in our midst today that maybe don't have a relationship with you as Savior. Father, that your spirit would so move in their heart that they would be able to make that connection of faith in Christ, that they would have a relationship, that they would become that new creation that you want them to become and for those of us lord who have trusted in you as savior father i pray that you would help us to walk humbly before you that you would help us to be quick to repent for our sins quick to respond to your inner their voice that you speak to us through father we desire to be obedient and faithful to you lord we pray for those family members and friends that we love so dearly that don't know you whether they're near us or far away, we pray, Lord, that you would bring saints around them, that they would find themselves in a church where the gospel of Christ would be proclaimed and they would come to know you. 
Father, help us to have your heart for the people in our community, that we would love as you love, that we would be burdened as you are burdened. Lord, we love you so much. I thank you for this life I have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.